we'll talk about that. Yeah, these scams go around for a while. We got, there was one going around where they'd reach out to you and want to hire you to do therapy. Yes, I've had that one too. <clears throat> and then they would send you a check. <laughs> and, and it was always a mistake, but they sent you like twice as much money yeah. as the sessions were going to be. And could you refund the difference? Right? And of course, you deposit the check. And then if you refund it, it would take the way they did it. I don't know how, but it would take them. I don't think it would work now because banks clear checks a lot faster. Mm -hmm. But usually about six, seven days later, you find out the check was no good. Right. Drawn on a non-existent bank or a non-closed uh, account. You know the thing. And yeah. so that went around for a while, right? But they they were written. I still remember. Anybody get those? You guys? Yeah, I got those? Them. And they were written very well, and it sounded plausible. You know, uh, we'll be in your town of, and they knew where you live, Venice, Florida. You know, we want you to work with my daughter on addictions. Yeah. Da, 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 da. I'm like, okay, and you know, I, I said, okay, I'll do four sessions over a weekend, whatever it was, nine ninety five. Okay, and then they, you know, they sent the check. And it came, and then, and they had it timed well, man. I was impressed, right? Because yeah. I get the mail, I open it up, there's a check, but it was like for $2,300. And then the email came in, oh, we made a mistake. Uh, just refund us the difference to this account. Right? And I'm like, oh, this is interesting, right? This is interesting, yeah. And, uh, I think they called me once too. You know? Really? They got your phone number? Well, yeah, it's my business. I mean, I. Oh, see, oh somebody yeah. Somebody goes, yeah. why'd you give me your phone number? Uh, it's called, you have a clinic? Uh, yeah. You know, my name ain't Tony Robbins as much as I'd like it to be. So I don't have a hidden phone number, when, especially when my clinic was rocking. But yeah. So I, and one time I said, I just want to see what'll happen. I deposited the check, right? Of course, oh. they give you the credit right away because I had good. This bank I'd done a lot of business with, and my clinic was busy, so depositing that much money was no big deal. And yeah, it took a few days, and uh, it came back as non non existent account. <laughs> wow, right? But they didn't charge the only thing I was worried. I go, Well, to me, I go, Well, what's the worst they can do is they'll charge me a $15. They didn't charge me anything, the bank just said the check's no good. And I didn't throw me into overdraft or anything. So I'm like, okay, fine. You know, but yeah. Uh, yeah, so that scam's been going around for a while. It's coming back again, you know, uh, but don't worry. I know you're getting an email today from a Nigerian prince. Who... <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, let's jump in and talk about leadership. Yes. Um, Thank you. Sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, my contact info, and I'm going to change this because I'm going to put up the um, next day or two, I'll get the uh, Facebook page up and uh, a separate uh, YouTube channel. Uh, what can I learn today, as always? I always start with that. How can I apply this new information? What are my personal blocks? What can I learn new today? How can I enjoy this material? How can I grow today? How can I be a better person? Whatever questions you want. But what can I do different today? So anyway, when we're going to talk about leadership, which is an interesting topic, you know, what are the traits 
that break down into leadership. Obviously, you have skills, right? You have performance. You have communication. You have trust. You have the ability to inspire. And then you have the desire to lead. I mean, these are things I think you need to be a leader, right? But some of these are kind of interesting, especially this is where corporations, have you ever, you ever worked in a toxic environment? Most of us have. And it, 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 it's because of bad leadership. Could be from the very top. It could be from, you know, your, your direct supervisor or whatever. Uh, and we've, a lot of us have had situations where you have great leadership, right? Um, so it's kind of, and it could be the same job. Could even be within the same company. Right? So what are these are? Skills, performance, communication, trust, ability to inspire, and the desire to lead. That's a big one. Well, what happens, I think, <clears throat> is we have lopsided metrics. You know, we were talking earlier about what are the metrics of this, when you hear the term case for COVID. I don't want to get all political, but it's a word. But unless you know what the metric is, it doesn't matter what the word is. But anyway, we have lopsided metrics in leadership because skills are easily measurable and skills can be learned. But when you look at skills and performance, skills may not transfer to performance. You know, what do I mean? I mean, for that, I can use uh, um, athletics is the easiest one to think about. You know, I've always heard it said, you know, if you played football in shorts and a t-shirt, more guys would be all pro, right? They have the skills, they can run, they can do this, they can catch, they can do that. But it doesn't transfer to the true performance of doing something. You need the you need some basic skills, right? But it doesn't necessarily go to the performance. Many of us have met people that their skills may not be the top notch, but they're a great performer, right? And so these two kind of bounce back and forth, but we can measure skills and we can measure performance. What is your, what's your sales quota? What's your, are you doing this? You know, that kind of performance, especially in business uh, and in a lot of things, you can measure performance, right? But performance does not all, always equal leadership, right? And so what we see in business a lot is we promote high performers, right? Thinking, oh, they'll, they'll be a great leader, but they create a totally toxic environment right? Uh, because maybe they don't have good communication skills. Maybe they don't have the desire to lead. They'd rather be, <clears throat> I always think of as salespeople. You can be a great, you have great sales skills. You, you do great performance. You're always at the, you know, top 10% of the company, da, 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 da. And then they promote you to management and you fall apart because A, you don't really want to be a manager. You know, I remember in uh, one company I worked at when I, right before I got into doing what I do, uh, their top performer, they kept trying to promote into uh, 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 management, and he didn't want to. And finally, they didn't understand it. So he ended up going to another company because he just wanted to be a salesperson. He's a little bit older, like at the time. This was back, I think it was in my early 30s. This guy was in his 40s. He tried to be a manager. He hated it. He just liked selling the stuff, right? I know a guy knows it makes a lot of money selling cars. And <clears throat> we were talking, this was a couple of years ago, and he goes, yeah, one time he tried to be the sales manager, it sucked, right? And because he didn't like to nurture people, he didn't want to mentor people, he just liked selling cars, right? 
And always he goes, what always happens, he goes to a new dealership and he becomes their top salesperson for several months or a year. Then they promote him to sales manager and he ends up going to another company. Finally, he found one of these, you know, how now car dealers here in the States, they're super dealers. They'll have a, you know, a, a Volkswagen dealership, a Chevy, GMC, a Ford. they'll have all these different things. And he'll, he just bounces around, right? And they finally, he finally found a company that had, that didn't kind of promote him out of what he wanted to do, right? But we can measure skills. We can measure performance. We can even measure communication. Can you communicate, right? But all of these things, we can also teach people. We can teach people better skills. This is where NLP can come in. We can help them with their performance and we can help them with their communication. And these skills are measurable, but they can lead to toxic environments unless you have the unmeasurable traits, right? The first is trust. You know, they, I heard it said in uh, uh, high performance military units, you know, a high performer, a guy that can do the job, he's an operator, if he's like a SEAL or a Ranger or something, right? Or Marine Recon, uh, he's an operator. And your teammates, you, 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 you'll trust them with your life. But can you trust them with your money or your wife? You know, so are you are you good at work? And are you good off work? Right? So in the military, you say, are you good in the battlefield? And are you good back in the unit? Right? So that's trust, you know, and it's kind of unmeasurable, right? But if you go into a lot of big businesses, and a lot of you here I know have worked in businesses or schools, like in Michelle's case, right? You can always walk in and ask, who's the asshole here? Right? And almost everybody will point to the same person or two, right? And then if you ask the same group, well, who here do you guys trust? They'll always point to the same two people, right? Kind of, or person or people, right? And trust is that immeasurable thing, right? Uh, do they have your back? Will they support you, you know? Will they place the, the, the not not totally disregarding their needs, but will they help you with your needs? So that's trust, you know? So that's kind of unmeasurable. And we can teach people communicate, but can they communicate clearly what they want, right? Can they take feedback, right? And when you look at, are they inspiring? The first thing you have to do to be inspiring is to inspire yourself, right? Uh, I'm involved with this new thing I'm trying to do. And one of the first things as I got involved was like, you know, I need to fall in love with the product and the company. If I'm going to do this, I got to be in love because, you know, we're all mature on this call. Uh, you know, when your kids were 14, 15, 16, they first fell in love for the first time, right? And they were like, oh, I'm in love, I'm in love. And you just want to slap them, right? Uh, maybe I'm just cynical. But when you're in love, when you're when you're inspired, because when you're in love, you're inspired, right? You see the good things, you share, you want to tell everybody what great it is, right? So if you want to inspire people, you have to be inspired yourself, right? So that is almost unmeasurable. But if they're inspiring, you know, we always meet people, they say they're very inspiring. Usually when you start talking to them, they're just inspired about something in their life, whether it's their business, whether it's their practice in our case, whether it's if they're selling something, it's the product, whatever it is, right? Boom, 
last, uh, another one is, do they want to lead, right? Do they want to be a leader, right? You might be a great, you know, teacher, and then they want to move you into like being a principal. But what if you don't want to be a principal, right? What if you don't want to be the department chair, right? Um, and then, you know, in our culture, sometimes we look, you know, it's like, well, of course you want, you know? But if you've ever been around, let's just like blue collar things, a lot of people, they just like doing the job. They don't want to become a foreman or a supervisor or a superintendent, right? It's a different skill set. You could be the best uh, electrician in the unit, like in a steel mill. And then, but you don't want to be a foreman. They make you a foreman. Now you got to do some other things, right? Which we'll talk about. So, so it's these unmeasurables. So yes, we have skills and performance, even communication, which we can teach, but then we have to have trust, the ability to communicate and the ability to inspire. <clears throat> and underneath it, do they want to lead? Do they want to lead, right? So <clears throat> when you look at leadership, real leadership, are you managers? <clears throat> do you want to be a manager? Or do you want to be a leader? There's a difference, right? Because sometimes real leaders don't take charge. Right, a real leader. When you look at like uh, leadership stuff, at least in my opinion, help others do their jobs and excel. Managers have a tendency to micromanage, right, or just do the job themselves. Right. So if you're leading, you have to lead people to do their jobs and and take them to ex so they can excel. And real leaders train others to do what they do. A good leader is always training somebody to take their job. You know, I know the military talks about that. Your executive officer is gonna move up and become a commanding officer, if not at this unit, in another unit, right? <clears throat> yeah, uh, you know, as you move up in the enlisted ranks, there's leadership. Not everybody wants to become, a, you know, the, the command sergeant major of a unit. Um, some do, some don't, right? Some people hit a comfort zone, you know? They, they, they'll, they'll be the, you know, the squad NCO or the, 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 the you know, uh, leader of that unit, but, you know, like a small squad. But leaders train others to do what they do. And a true leader gives away credit, but takes on the blame, right? And what I mean by that is if it doesn't, if they're doing a project, doesn't work, they don't point fingers. This is where you get to that toxic leadership because it's about trust. You know, they go, well, a good leader would say, maybe I, we didn't have the right training. We need to do this. You always see this. I see it in sports where the good coaches, you know, when they do a big win, they come on, he's always, oh, did, this team did this great, this did great, you know, that, 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 that. And when you look at the only sport I, the only two sports I follow anymore, excuse me, are American football, um, the National Football League, or like MMA, but especially like for the National Football League or college coaches, you know, when the team wins, they give all the credit to the players. They executed, they did this, they did that. This guy did a great game, blah, 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 blah. When they lose, a really good coach comes out and says, I just, I didn't coach well. I need to coach players up on this, or I need to coach players up on that, right? That builds trust in the locker room, right? And I went to this seminar and the person was talking about leadership and they're talking a lot about sports. A couple of people in the audience were, were, was trying to 
you know, they said, why don't you talk more about business? He goes, well, that locker room in the NFL is like an office. And it has subdivisions. You have the offense, the defense, the special teams. Some people have to do more than one thing. It's not like a lot of companies, you know. Um, I do this, but I also have to do this and this. You know, so he goes, if you can manage that, right? When you look at the military, right? The best of the best of the best in the in the military. They, the good leaders, you know, when a mission goes awry, they don't throw the troops under the bus, right? It might automatically you lose all trust. Right. So in sports or the military or in business, your boss throws you under the bus. Are you ever going to trust him again? You know, um, and how many times have you been in a situation where someone steps up for you? You know, they got your back. And that's what you always hear that being said, you know, uh, getting in a, like a military unit. And they say, oh, man, the, you know, the brass, the, the, the command here has your back. As long as you don't screw up. If you screw up, they're going to, you know, you're going to get the repercussions. But if you're doing the best you can, they're going to give you the tools to succeed. They're going to do this, this, and this. They got your back, right? As opposed to, you know, they throw you under the bus, right? So great leaders are not responsible for the job. They're responsible to those who get the job done. You know, and I heard Eisenhower said that. Right. As you know, because hey, when somebody say they'd be a great general. Well, uh, I heard someone say that about someone currently in the news. I go, well, you know what? The interesting thing is to be a great general in the army. You have to be a good second lieutenant. You have to be a good first lieutenant. You have to be a good captain. You have to be a good major. You have to be a good lieutenant colonel and a good colonel. Then you might become a general. Right. And what it is, each level of that kind of leadership has different skills, right? From the you know the lower officers, the the lieutenants, you know they're they're like squad level. You get into captain, they're a squad or a platoon. You get into major, now you got a small company, right? You go to lieutenant colonel, you got the you got a battalion, you know. Uh, you go to colonel, you might have a whole unit. I mean the whole not just the battalion, but the whole command. It might be the whole base. Right? And so each one leads up, right? And the first thing I do know they do in military training is they start knowing that they're training people to do their jobs, right? And one thing that the US military is prided on is, um, bear with me on this because it shows it, they share the 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 mission from the top to the bottom as much as possible not every aspect of a mission but as much as possible if you've ever seen the the movie saving private ryan um there's a couple of scenes where tom hanks as captain whatever his name was um he's explaining what their job is they're going to go find you know private ryan they got to do this and then he's sharing with them what they're doing right and how they're going to do it. Why is that important? Well, they're at war. He might get shot, right? They still got a mission to accomplish, right? If he didn't share that information, he goes, just follow orders, let's go, right? And he gets shot. Now you got these people that don't know what to do, right? I remember reading, and, and they talk about this is leadership, right? He's training, you know, he's got his old sergeant that's that's helping him, he's talking to him. Right, that's the one he can confide in. He won't, you know, tell 
the fears to the lowest guy, but it's a whole cool structure. And um, after that movie came out, you know, and played all over, uh, they were talking to some um, soldiers that served in the Japanese army, uh, the, the, the German army, even like in the Russians, uh, and, I, and, and a couple of the Vietnamese, you know, officers that were in Viet, on the Vietnam, on the North Vietnam side. And he said, that's what makes American military so formidable is they have good leadership. You know, maybe not at the top level like Vietnam, which the leaders were, were nuts, but the actual combat units, they have, they're always developing new leaders and everybody is, knows what the mission is that they're doing. So why you see like something will go bad in a, in a, in a combat situation, you know, it gets taken over by the sergeants because all the officers are dead, right? The Navy trains you that way. Okay, all the officers are dead. What are we going to do? We still got to put out the fire. We still got to, you know, keep the ship afloat. We got to do this. We got, so it's kind of interesting. So they're responsible for the, the, the captain's responsible for the people who are going to get the job done. You know, they're not going to necessarily go to the engine room and fix the engine or whatever it is. So can we do that with people? And I'm, it's just something to think about. Um, and so the reason this comes up with um, NLP is, you know, these skills, you know, we could talk about some of the things we could do to help people build their skill set, the new behavior generator. That would work for the skills and the performance, even communication. You could learn the smart model, you know, about when you're working on something. Is it is it um, questioning? Is it specific? Is it measurable? Is it achievable? Is it realistic? And is it testable? Right? Then you have a smart goal, you know. And so there's that, and that will build clear communication. You know, uh, I'm not sure about trust. You can you can begin to model inspiring people. You know what is it about this person that inspires people? You know, and we can do the new behavior generator on watching like a Barack Obama give a speech or a Ronald Reagan give a speech. They had the ability to inspire. Why? Underneath it, they seemed inspired themselves. You know, you know the shining city on the hill, the audacity of hope. Uh, whatever it is, the ability to inspire. They stepped into the state themselves so they could lead other people. And they had the desire to lead. They were, you know, they were running for, for, for the office of president. So anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, I just wanted to talk about that. I'm going to turn off the screen share and then have people share about, about this. And as I close, because the first person, if he's still on, I'm going to have to talk about is uh, leadership in a different way. Because since we have another expert on the panel, we have several, you're all experts. In fact, you're all better than me, to tell you the truth. I'm burned out. Anyway, uh, is um, leadership in a different way. And, and, and we're going to call on Albert in a moment, because I was thinking about film directors. A really good film director, right, can get an inspired, great performance out of an actor or an actress. Doesn't mean they can act. You know, I mean, Scorsese's a brilliant director. I've seen him act. I wouldn't cast him. Yeah. You know, 
Oh, or what was that guy that was on um, Actor Studio? The guy that passed away. He was Jane a great. Martin. He was a great acting teacher and a very good director. But he'd be the first to tell you he couldn't act, right? Because again, this this one points out that you can be good at a skill. Because everybody asks Michael Jordan, why didn't he coach? He goes, because I have no patience. I don't want to coach. Right? And he just, you know, as opposed to like Phil Jackson, the guy that coached him was a great basketball player himself, but he talked about how he had to become a leader, a leader of men. And then I'll close with the idea of, because they always study, like, why do these guys, to use sports analogies, bear with me, and then we'll come back to Albert on acting. But these guys, they always look at like college coaches, in the, especially like in the NFL. They'll go and they'll hire this great college coach because he like won the whatever. They're a great college coach. Best college coach right now is, is Saban at the University of Alabama. Hurts me to say that, right? Uh, Saban, University of Alabama, winning his coach, going down as one of the greatest in history. He bombed in the NFL. Right. And he left early in the season because he just couldn't handle it. Right. And there's a lot of reasons for that. He could coach. Sometimes you're a good leader at one level. You may not be the leader at another level. As you get to the NFL, every guy in that locker room is the best at what they do. You know, and, um, you know, and, and to flip that, uh, and then I will shut up, let Albert talk. The, uh, I've heard somebody say, you know, that uh, it's why when you get a, a, a person that you, they, they, especially businesses will promote them out of their, what they should be doing, you know, and Albert's seen actors that are fabulous fucking actors, excuse my language, right? And then they go to direct and you're just like, Jesus Christ, this is, this is a train wreck, right? And by, and, and a few can do it, the Clint Eastwoods, the Redfords and, and Newmans and people like that, but not all. Anyway, Albert, I don't know what you're going to talk about, but yeah, about uh -huh. leadership and that kind of stuff. Well, you know, I think there's various levels of leadership. I mean, you have some directors, you know, especially when you get on the TV and TV that let the actors make their own choices and really just worry about the technical side, like where an actor should stand, you know, how they should face the, you know, the, the, you know, what angle should they be walking, you know, so technical things, whereas they leave the choices up to them, you know, like do that. Um, and then you get some that really will craft a character and build a character with with the actor that really works with them uh, in detail as far as like how to look, you know, what facial expressions to make, when to blink, even like when to blink, really. You know, you get some that really get that, that precise and i think it's funny because there are you know with there are a few exceptions but a lot of acting teachers believe it or not you know are not working actors you know so sometimes there's that joke that there's that one saying that those who can do and those who can't teach which i don't i don't necessarily agree with that all the time but i i have seen that where i've seen where where, where Sometimes I would see these acting teachers advertising all these classes, and then when I look them up on IMDb, they've got and then movie data, they've got nothing. And it's like, okay, well, you know, I can't even find anything about you online. Like, I don't even know what plays you're in. So, I think that that's something interesting about leadership. And 
you know, there's also different types of leadership in business too, in my my perspective, where, you know, you have those that are more laissez-faire, you know, um, more, you know, on the laissez-faire type, which is laid back. And then you get some that are more authoritarian, uh, depending on their perspective. And and I think both work. It really depends on the the you know, the trust, the rapport, you know, going back to the rapport that you have with those that are, un, you know, that you're under you, too. Because uh, I know for me, you know, laissez-faire leadership sometimes doesn't work. You know, it may cause laziness or, you know, or people just keep veering off topic. Whereas sometimes being, you know, whipping a chain, being, being like kind of like a drill sergeant will cause rebellion and resentment. So, right. um, well, and in our field, just because you're a great hypnotist doesn't mean you can teach hypnosis, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's yeah. Or how many trainers do we see that aren't good clinicians? The ver- the good with you know getting people in their seats for their training, but yet, you know, they haven't. Some of I, I some actually have said I haven't seen clients in years. You know, which is interesting because then I'm like, well, what are you, you know, what makes you qualify to be teaching this class right now if you haven't been seeing clients? Well, they want to be professor emeritus of psychology where, you know. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> which we see. But yeah, so there, yeah. But I always think of that in the hypnosis world. Some of the best trainers may not, they may be okay clinicians, but they understand teaching. Mm-hmm. Right, because I know you guys have all seen a lot of you have seen me. One of the first things I tell trainers is, once you're training a group, you got ten people in the room who want to be hypnotists, and you're doing a demo. You're responsible to the ten people you're training. The demo can be irrelevant. Yeah, it's a fine line. So you know, but yeah, it's and so you're training the people, and now they're going to go do a technique with somebody. Can you let them fail? Or are you going to step in? No, no, I'll do the technique for them, right? And and that's a tough one because you kind of want to step in, but it's not even about that person getting the, the the benefit of the whatever that technique is. It's about the other person learning how to teach it, right? And, you know, if the person gets something out of it, that's a bonus, but that's not what they're there for. But, you know, I've, you know, I've, I've seen that. And I've been guilty of it, right? I've been guilty of it. So it's kind of interesting. Okay, so who has feedback? Michelle, have you, have you ever seen a toxic environment in a school? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, I have. As a matter of fact, um, the last school that I taught at uh, it was a public school. I taught in both private and public. And um, the principal was extremely divisive. She had a divide and conquer mentality and she wasn't very nice. She didn't like children. She wouldn't let the children touch her. This is in a day that uh, where the children and I taught first grade, they would come and they'd want hugs and she just didn't even want, she's like, no. She said, if I look at you, you can wave to me. Maybe. Oh, yeah, she was horrible. And she was so mean to the teachers on my very first day of school, the first day I worked 
at that school. Um, and I had just been hired the weekend before because someone had just quit. And so um, the, the weekend before school starts, now it's the first day of school. So I didn't know anyone right outside my classroom. Teachers had gathered and the voices were loud. So I go out into the hallway before school starts, see what's going on. This other teacher was against the wall, slid down the wall, sobbing, saying, I can't take her. I can't take it. And I thought, oh, and I went back into my room and I thought, wow, you know, how bad is she that she wasn't making it work with the principal? Oh, the principal would target someone every year. And this woman it was getting her second year of being targeted. I didn't know that at the time, but she, she was very toxic. But let me get jump a few years ahead. So I had left um, teaching and uh, she, was, she even did that to me. Uh, she did it to everybody. Um, my turn was about eight years into it and I had left and um, she had a huge flip out, flip out in front of the parents during bus dismissal time. She always had huge flip outs in front of us, in front of the teachers, but never in front of the parents or the administration. So when the union would say something, you know, they would be like, well, we don't see this. We don't, you know, but she did, she did it. She was swearing and yelling and flipping out so much. So the police had to be called and she's not allowed back on school property ever again. And she apologized to people. Well, she apologized to me. She sent me a card and apologized for her behavior. So I imagine she apologized to other people as well. It's okay. She's now the undersecretary of the Department of Education. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> she could have been. Oh, she hated it. She wouldn't test the children, you know, like when they needed special services, she was like, no, that costs money. We're not, they can do that in third grade and another building, let that come out of their budget. I'm like, and teachers were there for the children. And it, it just, she was awful. Yes, I've been in a toxic environment. And then of course there was my marriage, but that's but a million you, things. But you, have you ever worked in a school where they had your back? Yes. Well, the teachers, we all had each other's back, though. And um, the administration had our back. It was just she did not. The administration was wonderful and supportive. They, they tried, you know, they listened to us and they couldn't figure out what that missing link was because they never saw the principal behave that way. And so. But because um, on the metric, she did well. Right. Like on the performance, keeping under budget, all those oh, things they can budget. measure, mm -hmm. they go, that's what they're measuring. They're not measuring right. trust or leadership or inspiring or. Oh, you know. no. And she also um, was a teacher before she became a principal at our building. She was a, a teacher in another school. And when I was on good terms with her, when I was still new and she was grooming me and, and I didn't take to the grooming. But um, she told me how much she hated being a teacher. And I was like, well, how can you be a principal? She hated it, hated it. And she taught second grade and she likes doing the books. She likes being the boss. She likes being in charge, being in control, controlling people. 
Hey, she Chris, is. they're talking about you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, she was an effective budget person. She was not a good principal, but she was a good budget person. Yeah. And well, but, and go ahead. Oh no, the administration above her, the assistant superintendent, the superintendent, they always had the teacher's backs because they were teachers in our district and they had moved up the chain. Well, and, so, yeah, and then, you know, there was this, I read an article a long time ago that America changed, healthcare changed. Because in the early 1970, up to the, whenever it was, 73, 74, like all your local hospitals, the CEO of the hospital was a doctor and they took turns. And, and a lot of times nobody wanted to do the goddamn job, to be honest with you, right? They're like, well, you gotta be the CEO now, you know, it's your turn, I don't wanna do it. That. So, you know, it was run like a medical unit. And then uh, I'll blame education on this one, Michelle, you made me think of it. They came up with the title of um, Master of uh, Public Health. You could get a master's and even a doctorate in public health where you became a person that's going to run a hospital, right? And that's when medicine in the United States changed, mm. right? Because you didn't- The budget. The, the budget. Yeah. And, and, and I just can be honest, I saw this when at a mental health center because when I first got there, it was run by a psychiatrist. And it, so he's thinking like a psychiatrist, you know, Clients needs this, this. Then we get this young guy, 26, MBA with mass, you know, for for public health. And I just put it this way. Uh, there, there was a thing going on where kids would come in alcohol and drugs. How he was there, alcohol and drug treatment. And they had good insurance from the steel mill. Well, after whatever it was, the steel mill insurance was done, right? Well, he found out what he could do is he goes, well, you go tell the parents to sign them over as wards of the state. And once they become a ward of the state, then we can get the state money and keep them in treatment. Wow. And so everybody's sitting there and this one old psychiatrist goes, well, we've got to tell them that once you turn your kids as a ward of the state, you're no longer their mom. Yeah. You may not even be able to visit them. And he goes, no, no, don't tell them that. <gasps> right? And I'm sitting there, everybody thinks I'm crazy when I said that, I'm sitting there and this guy goes, Basically, he was, an old, he was an old Jewish psychiatrist. He goes, you know what? Let me put it this way. Fuck you. I will not do that to a client. And this went on and on and on. Next day, he was gone. The psychiatrist was gone. So everybody knew a psychiatrist who'd been there for like 10 or 12 years was expendable. Right? And so, like, you saw that subtle, subtle shift where people, you know, anyway, that's different kind of leadership. Okay. And now I, I'm going to ask Carol, because I know she's worked in uh, Fortune 500 companies. Yeah. Have you been in toxic environments and then is and in good environments? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and you know it's so different. Well, I worked for Hewlett Packard for 13 years, and I had a very unique position in that um, I worked as a liaison between the manufacturing facilities and the engineers and, and, um, and then the customer base, our, our dealerships who sold our computers and printers and so on. And I did a lot of training. And I had some of the greatest 
managers, uh, you know, of, of all time. I mean, they just recognized what talents I had and set me loose to do what I did best and gave me the support I needed. And those were the jobs where I achieved goals and and broke records for the organization I was in because I was free to do what I did well. And then I had those <clears throat> managers who were very intimidated by women who had opinions, uh, you know, and and wanted to to operate um, the way that I operate, and and they just squelched me and held me down and wouldn't let me do anything. And and of course, you know, what do you do? You 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 just can't achieve anything and you have to just move on. They suffocate you. But also, you know, I worked in a psychiatric treatment facility. I worked in the prison system. And in those places in California, um, if you don't have good leadership, it can make the difference between life and death for you. When you're put into a position as a correctional officer in a prison, and uh, you are not, especially as a young, I was a college graduate and you know, I, I wasn't even 21 yet, so I wasn't allowed by law to carry a firearm to protect myself. And um, you know, they just throw you to the wolves. And then I had some who really trained me on what to look for, what to do, how to stay safe, that sort of thing. Makes a hell of a lot of difference. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. When I, I worked at this that prison, my prison time. Um, <laughs> Your prison time. Yep. They got a new assistant warden, and all this. I ran the mental health unit, so it was weird. They hated us anyway because we made more money than than the guards, right? So yeah. But, um, we were in this meeting, and it was about one topic, which was they found out we had a book club. That the social workers and the the, the, the yeah. staff had a book club. We'd meet at lunchtime because you couldn't leave. The, you know this if you ever anybody else worked in prison. You can't leave the prison at lunch. It's right. a pain in the ass, right? Yeah. So right. you know after lunch we had an hour. Uh, so they we had a book club, right? Fine, right? This one warden that they got in had a heart attack over this. We are in a meeting because he's like. Basically, I swear to God, if, if my memory is faulty, it probably is. But he leans, he goes, but I don't want any of my officers in this thing. I don't want to read no books. Oh, my gosh. Now, you got a picture. This is Florida. And this guy was like from the northern panhandle. <clears throat> right. And in that system, what you saw is a correctional officer. They would mess with the inmates. That's what they do. Right. And then they get promoted and then they would mess with the other guards or officers. And then they kept going up that chain of command. And so now the warden, his thing was to just, it was, you know, and his big claim to fame, he could feed a person in the Florida prison system for $1.75 a day. Oh my God. So you yeah. can imagine the kind of food they were eating. Oh, <laughs> you don't want to know. It was like, but like. I still remember him doing that. I don't want none of my officers reading and I'm like, so this one social worker goes, 
the officers would be fine. Most of your most of your administration couldn't read the books we read. <laughs> But the guy didn't get the insult. So I thought it was pretty funny. Actually, I was a good boy at that job. That's okay. Real quick, Miss Laura, how about you? Did you just a feedback and then we'll bounce around? Yeah, uh, well, and I worked in um, IT departments and uh, manager and, um, and in consulting. So with a lot of like small, big, large businesses. And kind of to your point, Dr. Willen, with the whole thing about medicine, my dad was a a neurosurgeon is that they do not make good managers. They might make good leaders in their, I can call it microcosm. And IT people are the same in a lot of cases. Like they're very, you got to demonstrate your skills and knowledge and they're not necessarily the best managers of people and not necessarily overall leadership. Some, some are great. Uh, I do remember a really good, uh, executive vice president that we had that I worked with and he um, he was actually front in, in a bank and he was actually a commercial commercial vice president and they moved him into the operations area to take care of IT people or lead um, the group and he was fabulous because he ran it like a business but many of the managers who were IT mindset went he doesn't know the first thing about you know application he doesn't know the first thing about networks and he didn't have to he just surrounded himself by people who did know right which was great and it was the best best time ever i worked in in an it group but i have had some pretty disastrous people military style doesn't work they do it people do need to be managed well <laughs> they don't you do have to prove your competency to them cool and, and women in leadership are interesting too, because I did work with one in IT and she was um, the only way a lot of people described her was a, a witch and a ball buster. And she just had a lot of difficulty, you know, because she, she figured she was a skirt and, you know, that they had to respect her. And, you know, she so she, her, her way of working with the men in the team and her, the people um, on her team was like, not good, like very, very toxic. Eventually she was gone. Yeah. All right. And Miss Pam in Jersey. Is she there? Okay. I will. Hey. Uh, yeah, had, had my share of toxic environments. Um, it was difficult, Lori was mentioning, uh, working with doctors. Uh, at one point I uh, was an office manager and I worked with doctors. That was very challenging. I had to hire the doctors and manage the office. And uh, and I was put in a, a, a position where I was kind of caught in between a rock and a hard place. My job was to make a lot of money for the practice, but at the same time that meant overbooking the doctors and I was kind of caught in between. I had doctors slamming doors and <laughs> and uh, throwing chairs. <laughs> it was uh, very toxic and very challenging. Um, but I, I enjoyed working with the patients and enjoyed working with, uh, you know, the people, the, the public. And um, but it was very challenging. You were always kind of like um, uh, caught in between. I. As a manager, um, I was kind of guilty of trying to be the nice guy manager. Uh, I tend to be a people pleaser. And so uh, I'm guilty of some of the things you mentioned about uh, 
you know, not not disciplining and, and trying to do it myself if I <laughs> rather than confront the people at times. That's that's one of my uh, weak areas. Um, another challenging one was back God, in the days of women's lib <laughs> when I was in sales and uh, I was a sales manager and I was like the only woman in the in the company that uh, was in sales. And that was challenging, too, because they used to um, kind of goad the men like, are you going to let this little girl <laughs> outshine you? And I would get, you know, I, I had a good manager in terms of uh, giving me training and I was pretty successful at it. But um, I, as being the only woman, that was very challenging. Um, they would kind of pit the men against me to motivate them. And that was hard. That was really hard for me. Um, but I did have some really good managers there too who trained me and I moved up the, you know, moved up the ladder because of, you know, their excellent training uh, and supervision. Um, but it, but it was challenging, and it was challenging being the only woman uh, at the time uh, uh, sales manager uh, in the company there. So um, I've had some good experiences, and I've had some you know not so good experiences with management. Cool. All right. Well, that was just a good topic today. I think it was fun. It was. I, I was wondering, like when you were talking about prisons, Doctor Mellon, and I can't remember who else, but Carol. And I was thinking. Do you really need experience to be a leader? And I'm not sure we want prisoners as leaders, but we'd want their input. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and because they talk, I forget the guy that was known for a while, because when I worked there, I'd read about it. He was known for turning prisons around. And what he got, what he would do was when he first went there, he met with the inmates, not the staff, and got their feet, because if they're not, a lot of if you if you're serving life without the possibility of parole, you'll shank a guard or a social worker. What are they going to do? Give you a double life sentence? I mean, especially in the state of Florida, you're never seeing it, you know. And but he got a lot of flack from people about doing that, right? But anyway, it was kind of interesting. Maybe one day we'll do a thing on, um, and Albert can help with this, and Carolyn about. Uh, Kind of this topic but take it into um clinical supervision yeah right because you'd be a great clinician be a horrible clinical supervisor right i've seen that whoa i've seen and i've seen people that may not be that good but they're great clinical supervisors i actually learned that in the prison because my main job was i was the clinical supervisor for the for two psychologists and about 17 social workers so actually, my main thing was talking to them. I rarely talked to inmates, right? In fact, I preferred the inmates. They made much more sense to me. I don't know what that says about me, but- Well, they're very direct. They'll tell you where you stand and what they think. Yeah. yeah. There's no game playing. Yeah. So, yeah. all right, cool. So look for more on this. I'll get the web page up, not web page, Facebook page and uh, and that yeah maybe we'll do one on clinical supervision which is what's needed in the hypnosis world you know after you after you turn off the recording i have a question 